Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. I'm giving my dear old dad the day off because uh, I just think he's going to misbehave today. So, (laughs) by the way, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and all the IGs and all that good stuff. We love to hear from you. Today's guest is Danielle Pletka. Uh, Danielle is a senior fellow, or Danny, as the cool kids call her. (laughs) But I don't know if I've earned that right yet. We'll see. Don't hesitate. (laughs) Danielle Pletka is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, having served as the SVP for foreign and defense policy studies there, and is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Prior to joining AEI, Danny was a senior staff member of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations as the point person on Middle East, Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan. And uh, I guess I should jump to my first question for for you, Danny. What the hell is going on? (laughs) Exactly. What a question, right? It's not, you know, you know, that's the name, obviously, of of the podcast I co-host with Mark Thiessen. But but in addition, it was, of course, the most perfect name for a podcast during the Trump administration, because those were the words on everybody's lips pretty much all the time. Yeah. The way I found it, I'm a fan of yours, so I think I would have found it anyway. But it was one of those things where my phone on Google I must have said, what the hell is going on? And it picked it up. You know how it's like it has that automatic thing. It picked it up. And then your podcast showed up. I'm like, oh, wait, she has a podcast. This is cool. (laughs) So (laughs) it was great. Well, I wanted to ask, you started in Australia and at a certain point moved to Massachusetts. How old were you when you moved to Massachusetts? I was a little girl. I moved with my parents. You know, it's funny. I could have sworn that you were a little bit further along, maybe in your teenage years, because I noticed that occasionally you slip into a, an Australian accent, especially when you're speaking to a fellow, a fellow countryman. Like uh, I think last week's, the fellow you were interviewing is also an Australian. So that's right. So we had Jonathan Swan on, who's a reporter with Axios, and Jonathan is a much more recent immigrant from Australia than I am. Although sadly, he's from Sydney, and he has that disability but other than that <laughs> yes um no i know it's it's one of those funny things i've got a very mutable accent and mm. um, when i'm talking to an american i sound like an american yeah. but when i moved to america my uh, my mom uh, was very adamant with me about how i spoke and i wasn't to call a tap a faucet and i wasn't to say water and i wasn't to say yes and so <laughs> when i'm being when i'm being myself i don't i i don't do those things how about that? Yeah, I, my lovely bride, I met her in 1993. No, excuse me. Yeah, 93. 
and um, we, she moved up up north from Alabama shortly thereafter. But to this day, when she gets on with Aunt Aunt Wani in Alabama, she slips right back into the uh, the old way of talking. So now you studied history at Smith College, which actually has recently been in the news. But I was curious: was it at Smith that you began to form some of your more conservative positions, or? Did that take shape more when you were getting your master's at Johns Hopkins? No, I was probably a conservative when I went to Smith, actually. Mm. Um, and God knows. Uh, so I grew up for the most part in Brookline, Massachusetts, or as some people refer to it, the People's Republic of Brookline, Massachusetts. <laughs> and uh, and so I was pretty conservative when I went to Smith. And Smith only made me more conservative. I don't. I don't like being pressured into into thinking certain things. I don't like being uh, hearing only one perspective. Uh, now, when I teach, I'm very sort of sensitive to that because you're not teaching when you teach people only only one thing. And so, you know, I wasn't very politically active at Smith. Uh, in fact, I, that's probably an exaggeration. I don't think I was politically active at all when I was at Smith. And so, yeah, but I was. You know, I was a conservative and I certainly don't support anything that Smith is doing now. Yeah, that that recent uh, hubbub recently that seemed to come from a categorical worldview that they seem to have overcorrected. I, look, I mean, I think it's very hard. You know, if if Smith is Smith is a, a women's college, as of course everybody knows, and I think it's hard for women's colleges, um, you know, it's hard, first of all, to remain a, a women's college and to keep your standards this high because a lot of women don't want to go to a school with just other women. Um, you know, whether it's for reasons of, of of fun, conviviality, education, diversity, sports, all of those things for whatever reason. And and then they are very, very committed to having an extraordinarily diverse student body. And if you are a, a young woman who is from a minority uh, community, you have a lot of options. Mm. And Smith isn't necessarily going to be one of them. And so I, 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 think, they've, I, I think they've dumbed themselves down. I think they've uh, become extraordinarily rigid. And I've watched this process unravel over the years since I graduated. And it's, it's been a while. Mm. And um, it, it hasn't helped them at all. And, uh, and that's a shame because uh, I think Smith used to be a good school back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, you said that you had come to the party, come to Smith with some already formed conservative views. How did you begin to develop some of those views? Was, was it in hearing others around you? you? You seem often to be in situations where others are around you. You're the opposing voice, right? Is that how you began to develop some of those conservative views in contrast with others around you? My dad was pretty conservative, um, and he subscribed to Commentary magazine. And insofar as we talked about those things, um, I tended to share my dad's views about about the world. You know, my parents uh, my parents lived through um, the Holocaust, and from that and from both of them, I I, I learned a strong dislike of of anti democratic tyrannies. And it's all pretty natural. What got me used to being the only one in the room was that my real area of expertise is the Middle East. And for many years, whether I was a journalist or I was working in government, 
as the person dealing with 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 either Arab American or, or Iran American or all of those sorts of related issues, I was invariably the only woman in the room, and that was fine. You know, I I don't mind. Um, I, I want to hear what other people have to say, uh, and uh, and I I have my principles, and I'm pretty true to them. Yeah. Yeah, you certainly are. I've always appreciated. I always look forward, like yesterday, uh, you were on Meet the Press, and I always look forward when I hear that you're going to be on a panel. I always make sure to tune in. Thank you. You do have clear set of principles, but one of the things I really appreciate is that you you are able to engage in substantive conversation with any number of people who have different points of view and even different styles and approaches. So, I've always appreciated that about you. When thank you, sure. <laughs> um, now, as mentioned, you you uh, earned your master's in international studies from Johns Hopkins. What drew you specifically to international studies? It's what I love. Um, I love national security. I love foreign policy. I always have. I'm, I'm good at foreign languages. That that helps. That's my family background. My my immediate family and my in my immediate family of mom dad brother and, and me not one of us was born on the same continent oh um yeah kind of cool and so um and so no that's that's what i like i really thought when i was a girl that i wanted to be a doctor but i suck at chemistry um <laughs> and i really am not good at math and i i love biology but if you want to be a doctor you have to actually not suck at chemistry and math <laughs> and so and so so you can say by default i i ended up in the world of liberal arts and no this is what i this is what i like this is what i care about this is what interests me and not all of it you know there are areas of the world i find confusing i don't find I don't. I don't have empathy for. Um, I don't find this fascinating. I love my part of the world. I love the Middle East, and I always have. So you have to take me to your immediate family members, all born on different continents. How did that work out? Um, you know, the the 20th century was a was a, especially the first half of the 20th century was a was a complicated time in in uh, in our world, and uh, people people moved a lot. Yeah. And uh, and uh, my parents were, were part of that and they, they had to move a, a lot. So my mother ended up being born in Asia and, uh, and my dad was born in Europe and uh, I was born in Australia and my brother was born in the United States. How about that? <laughs> yeah. How about that? Well, you might appreciate this. I was on a three and a half hour Zoom yesterday morning wow. with uh, about 50 of my family and extended family members, we were commemorating the centennial, the 100 year anniversary, which was last Wednesday of that branch of our family arriving in Ellis Island. So it was- Wow, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. That is really cool. It, is, it was so cool. And, and um, all the various members found different uh, articles and photos. And it was just so interesting to dive into, uh, it's called Chernyostrov. Uh, on the Black Sea, where the shtetl, where uh, that branch of the family came from, and just and learning about. And what was about, their name? Let's see. My my paternal grandmother's name is Kribolya. Uh, I think that's how you say it. And wow. it's a part of Eastern Europe that at one time was Prussia and Russia or Poland. It, the the lines were always moving, uh, yep. but the, they had been there. I, sorry, this isn't. My pod. This is your podcast. No. So, no, no, don't be silly. I find people's family histories interesting. I'm always amazed when I talk to 
people and you know people who have the privilege of being Americans um, sometimes don't have as much curiosity about where their family came from and I I'm always gobsmacked about that uh, because I, I love hearing about people's family histories I think it tells you an awful lot about them and uh, and even how their names changed over the years and yeah I know I like that stuff so yeah. good for you for for keeping in touch with everybody yeah, it was great. It was a really mammoth task for my aunt Sheila, um, who lives in uh, Israel. She uh, she and Alan moved in the late 70s with their three kids who are about my age. And they've been there. Um, all three of my cousins uh, went through the Israeli army. Now they have kids who are in the army. So we're, we have uh, deep roots there, which I'll get to. I know that's your uh, that's a particular point of interest for you as well. So we'll get to that. You first entered into journalism after school as an editorial assistant and an intern at LA Times and Reuters before going to work for Insight Magazine. Uh, and candidly, Insight has been known to be a more you know, conservative-leaning publication. Is that one of the reasons that you decided to take that job? No, uh-uh. not, not at all. Um, after I finished, uh, after I finished graduate school, I had uh, no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> and, um, right. And remember my unbelievable, um, uh, lack of capacity at, at numbers meant that I wasn't going to work at Citibank <laughs> or anywhere close to it. So no, I had no idea what I was going to do. And my main experience, um, other than, you know, working in restaurants as a bus boy and as a waitress and, you know, selling shoes at the mall when I was in high school, my main experience had been in those those journalism jobs that I had done in, in Israel um, over the course of a year. And so I actually just applied for this job. I didn't know the magazine at all, and it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, but I applied for this job and ended up there uh, with an absolutely amazing group of people, all of whom have done extraordinarily well for themselves. Great group of journalists, of, of, of analysts, of thinkers. So uh, it was it was pure luck. Mm. Well, you must have done some really important work there because the next gig that you had was as a senior staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What, what was your body of work like during your time at Insight? Well, I, was, I wrote a lot about, obviously, about foreign policy and about national security. I did a lot of work on the Middle East. And, you know, the um, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait happened mm. while I was there, low these many years ago in 1990, um, right about the mid the midterm that I was there. So I really did a lot of uh, I did a lot of coverage of all of those kinds of issues. And that was kind of the, the uh, a moment where um Things were starting to change in the Middle East, but but not not that much. We still had all the leaders who had been in place ten years ago, whether it was you know Hosni Mubarak or it was Gaddafi in Libya or it was any of the above. So uh, you know, I, I I wrote about that. But as a result, and I also traveled in the region uh, for for the magazine. So I had a great group of people who I worked with, who are my sources, who helped inform me and helped me understand uh, about policy. People in the government who I talked to and at think tanks, and um, and so you know, it ended up being it ended up being an uh, an amazing transition that I was really really lucky to make. And it sounds like that's where you began to develop some of the relationships that you still have to this day. You know, I've been in Washington now for uh, coming up on 35 years. Um, and I, I've still got best friends who were with me at Insight Magazine. I've got my entire set of cronies who I worked with on Capitol Hill 
all of whom are are, are people who I view uh, like family. Um, we're hugely close, and uh, I mean truly. And and we you know we've known each other for in in most cases a, a quarter of a century. So yeah, all of those relationships. That's 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 what Washington is like. You know, people people forget. This used to be a really small town. It's still a pretty small town, and it's a very provincial town. Um, you, you, if you stick around long enough and you grow older, I always tell people, you know, you, you may know the desk officer now or the or the you know low level legislative correspondent on Capitol Hill, but eventually you'll know them when they become deputy secretary of state, under secretary of state, secretary of defense. My my colleagues from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee during the Trump administration, uh, Mark Esper was the Secretary of Defense. Steve Began was Deputy Secretary of State, and I could keep going with a bunch of other people who had senior had senior positions. And the same is true for my Democratic colleagues. Tony Blinken, who's the current Secretary of State in the Biden administration, was a colleague of mine when I was at the committee. Wow, wow, that's that's incredible. It 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 is like uh, my experience here. I've worked in the entertainment industry for the last couple of decades plus. And yeah, to your point, there were uh, young people that were an executive assistant when I was first getting into the business. And you could always tell this person is essentially a temp and they're going to be working somewhere else. But this person really knows what the hell they're talking about. This person is going to be someone I know for years and years to come. And now one of those people is running Sony. So that's <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. He's done pretty well for himself from, uh, you know, from the assistance desk. Now, you then spent about a decade as a senior staffer, as I mentioned, for, but your specialty was uh, Near East and South Asia on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Most of that time under, um, under the, the chairman of the committee was Jesse Helms. Now, a lot of folks hear Jesse Helms and they immediately think of you know, uh, his his long record in the South, there's usually a one dimensional sort of recollection of who he was and the impact he had. Was that your experience working, uh, working under Senator Helms? Really not. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I wasn't a, a I wasn't a politics sort of a person in, in in domestic politics sort of a person when I when I went to work there. And I, I went to a bunch of my friends and said, you know, what do you know about Jesse Helms? What should I do? You know, this is the days before the Internet. And I said, you know, I know I'm going to be working on foreign policy. And everybody said, you know, no, this is a great opportunity and, and you should. I know people feel very comfortable sitting in judgment uh, on others uh, these days. and. I don't like that. I will tell you, you know, the the Jesse Helms that I knew and who I worked for for 10 years was, uh, first of all, you know, didn't have a, a bigoted bone in his body. I wouldn't have worked for him. Never um, was it was a decent, um, compassionate, great American who believed in who believed, you know, in standing up to what was then the Soviet Union. And that was very much animating part of his his foreign policy. But who who stood up for our allies, who worked very closely with his um, his ranking member, and in some cases his chairman Joe Biden, um, and had no trouble working with him. And uh, so, you know, I thought it, for me it was a great experience, and I have a lot of respect for people who put themselves out there in the public arena, and who are willing to submit themselves to the judgment of their the people of their state uh, to be elected or, or reelected or or not. Um, and he he was, 
he chose not to run again in uh, in 2002 because he was he was not old when when you talk about old now <laughs> and the president of the United States, but but he was old enough that he recognized that he shouldn't be serving another six years, and uh, and he stepped down. It was a great experience and a huge learning experience, and I still have a huge amount of respect for Jesse Helms. Yeah, to your point, I just read something where President Biden said there was certain legislation that couldn't have gotten done without without his partner on the committee there, um, Jesse Helms. I am surprised to hear you say that there wasn't a bigoted bone in his body because there were some provocative things that he he said over the years. I think that's I think that's right. Um, I think he did say provocative things over the years. I think that he. Um, I think he represented his state and the views of his state. And there are things that are anathema to us now, things that, that you know, I don't, I, I don't agree with, things that a lot of people don't agree with, and things that, you know, the current people of North Carolina don't agree with. But I think it's very easy to take the mores of, of today right. and try to apply them to, you know, to a, a turbulent period in American history and suggest that somehow you knew that some people should have behaved differently. You know, we might have liked it if people would have behaved differently, but the notion, but but I can assure you that, you know, we worked with plenty of people who were, uh, the expression people like to use now is of color. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I certainly would have heard the Senator had he viewed them any differently than he viewed people who weren't of color. Right. And I didn't. Maybe maybe it was because he learned things differently. Maybe it was because he adapted with the times. But when I went to work for him in 1992, until he until I stopped working for him in 2002, he never he his his biggest prejudice was against communists. Mm. And I feel really good about that. <laughs> it does seem if you start to read some of his speeches or uh, some of the legislation that he was working on, you you had arrived when he was already in his at least his third term, if not his fourth term. So that's that's a pretty long time, a long trajectory. And to your point, there was there was indeed a trajectory in, in some of the things that he worked on. Oh, I also think he, he look, he changed his mind about Israel, for example. You know, he was very anti-Israel. And uh it was it was very interesting. You know, he 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 was and I think he was sort of genuinely anti-Israel, you know, not an anti-Semite, didn't hate the Jews, you know, right. none, of, none of the above, but was was anti-Israel with a very sort of, you know, American realist perspective. And in 1984, he ran against the former governor of North Carolina for, for the Senate seat um, for, against Jim Hunt. And what happened was of one of his best friends in the Senate, a senator from God now Nevada, I think, yeah. uh, Chick, Chick Hecht, took him to Israel. He said, "Jesse, I want you to see it." Right, and Senator Helms fell in love. Right, um, he really did. You know, he he came back and he said, "This is a country I respect. This is a country that, whose security, you know, I feel good about standing up for." People thought, oh, he, you know, was just to sort of did a switcheroo for APAC or to beat Jim Hunt or, uh, or, or for money. And and the answer was, you know, no, that wasn't how he felt. Uh, he he changed his mind. Right. He grew and he understood uh, from my perspective. And that's what you want members to do. That's what you want people to do. I'm I, and anybody can change their mind. 
Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's so much of what you say that makes so much sense. Number one is allowing for the reality that folks represent a certain constituency, one who represents a, you know, even more so in the Congress than the Senate, but, you know, somebody who represents a district that covers a certain part of Manhattan, for example, is not going to have the same constituency as someone who represents my wife's old hometown of Aniston, Alabama. And therefore, there should be a plurality of views that are expressed. But I think the other thing that that you said that makes so much sense is to not apply the mores of today, some of which are pretty particular, uh, to someone you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, you know, or 150 years ago. A- after all, you know, there was a traje- another point that you made, a, a trajectory to Abraham Lincoln's views. I was reading something yesterday about um, Frederick Douglass had serious, serious critiques to make about Abraham Lincoln. And there was a there was an evolution there to some of his views, theologically as well as politically. So I really appreciate so much of what you're saying. Now, you you were still on that committee during 9-11. What was it like to work on that that particular committee with your particular portfolio, the, you know, with a specialty in Middle East in the days just after 9-11? Well, I was, you know, like, like, like most Americans who were alive at that point, I remember where I was when I heard about, uh, when I heard about uh, the planes hitting the, the World Trade Center and I was on my way to work and I went to work and Eventually, the Capitol Police, the police, the Capitol Police got us out. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an important policy question to ask uh, about because terrorism, um, Afghanistan, um, Al Qaeda, these were all part of my portfolio, and I think it's safe to say that while there were very serious disagreements between. Um, between, for example, the Clinton administration and and we on the Hill who oversaw their work in this area, and then pretty serious disagreements with the very, very new Bush administration um, as well. I don't think anybody envisioned um, this attack. And the funny thing about that is we haven't gotten much smarter. Mm. We haven't gotten much better, you know, as somebody who's worked on this and in this space for this period of time, you know, both militarily and on the intelligence side and on the diplomatic and, and economic side, you know, we we have a tendency to always want to win the last war, but we're not very good about understanding what it is that's animating these groups. And um, it is quite remarkable to see. I mean, I think Al Qaeda is now stronger than it was before 9/11. Wow, that, that's yeah. scary. That, that and you say that we haven't gotten much smarter in 20 years. That's pretty scary. It, it's amazing that it's been 20 years. It certainly has flown by. But you know, uh, again, you can't you can't treat national security in your country, um, you know, as if an attack is imminent at every moment. But to fail to to pay attention to and to keep track of these organizations and understand how they've evolved and allow them mm. that space to evolve um, is really pretty dangerous. We've got some wonderful people who work with me at the American Enterprise Institute who are really on top of this. And while I think our intelligence community and our military communities are aware of what the problem is, they are also aware that we're not doing very much. Right, right. 
Wow. Well, I'd, I'd like to ask you about some current topics. First of all, I I think I said something along these lines already, but I, it's worth repeating. I, I always appreciate your willingness to call balls and strikes. You know, I've heard you criticize policies you found to be faulty and praising those that deserved it. I'm curious about your assessment now of the Trump administration's Middle East policy. Yeah, Mark Thiessen and I talk a lot about, a lot about that on our podcast. It's very hard to dis- to, to, to separate out the various strains of the Trump administration, even, even for people who are not sort of Trump deranged. Um, because, you know, first of all, the Trump administration went out on such a terrible note uh, with the, with the you know, attempted insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol. And so you feel guilty anytime you say something good about, about the Trump administration. But of course, what we need to remember is that there were plenty of good people who worked mm. in the Trump administration. Donald Trump wasn't one of them, but there were plenty <laughs> of good people yeah. um, who worked. And and another thing that, that Mark and I try to emphasize all the time, sometimes him a little bit more enthusiastically than, than me, and that is that um, in some ways, Trump's willingness to throw out our diplomatic playbooks of the last half century enabled him to do very different and in some cases very important things. So, you know, we all, we in my Middle East community all sneered at the idea that the president of the United States would appoint his son-in-law for no apparent other reason than that he was Jewish uh, as the person who was going to be point man on Middle East. And, um, and you know, Jared Kushner didn't make it a lot better when, you know, he said, I've read X number of books and, you know, now I know as much as those guys. On the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, we got we've got to give those guys credit. And, you know, even if you don't want to um, for peace deals in um, in the Middle East in one presidential term is pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, some of my some of my cronies in the Middle East community like to say, oh, well, that's just an acceptance of what the reality already was. I'm sorry. That's not right. You know. It wasn't an acceptance of what the reality already was. Those weren't realities. And the Trump administration made them happen. Mike Pompeo, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, you know, they made those things happen. And um, and they deserve credit for it. They deserve a lot of discredit for a lot of the other stupid, bad, dangerous, rotten things they did. But this was very important. And I think a big part of that was that they weren't informed by you know, the sort of chin stroking diplomats who said, no, 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 this is the way you do things, you know, (laughs) no, we're not going to do it that way. Screw you, you know, and they were right. And they accomplished a lot. If I write a play and produce a play uh, that contains chin stroking diplomats, uh, I'll ask you to play one of one of those parts. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to use that voice too. Um, but you, you take a more charitable, you have a much more informed, obviously, uh, view of these things than I do. But just as a an interested, engaged observer, you certainly take a more charitable view. My cousins, for example, who serve uh, served in the military in Israel, I don't think ever woke up saying, I'm really worried about Bahrain, for example. But to your point, there were other deals that were made, and it should be acknowledged that some, you know, that some good work was done. We can't just be dismissive of an entire four years and an entire administration. You know, there were good people that worked in that administration, many of them 
left, but you know, it's it's much more nuanced uh, as as your partner in crime. But you do it. You do you do your cousins a discredit, or maybe they do Israeli Israeli national security a discredit. First of all, you know our fifth fleet, which is is the main operational naval force in the Middle East of the United States of America, the most powerful country in the world, is headquartered in Bahrain. Yeah, they care a lot about what happens in Bahrain. If Bahrain ends up being dominated by Iran. Our fifth fleet isn't going to be there anymore. That's not something our friends in Israel want. If you are fighting in the Israeli military, your main threat is the people who Iran is giving money to, giving training to, giving arms to. And you don't want them to dominate Syria, Lebanon, Hamas, right? Gaza, Yemen, Iraq. I could keep going on. So yeah, sure. Bahrain is, you know, Bahrain is a tiny little piddly country and only people like me care about Bahrain. But actually having Bahrain having a peace agreement with Israel means something. On top of that, Saudi Arabia is very dominant in Bahraini uh, government policy and they wouldn't have done a peace agreement with Israel if the Saudis hadn't said okay. The fact that the Saudis were okay is also good news for Israel and also good news for the Israeli military because Saudi Arabia is the de facto leader of the Sunni Arab world. So, you know, you can't, you can't just think about it like, you know, oh, I, I woke up this morning and I, it's, like, it's, like, it's like an American, someone running for president waking up in the morning and going, oh, I really don't give a crap about Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, you kind of want those electoral votes. You just reminded me why I should usually frame things more as a question, especially when I have an expert <laughs> on, as opposed to asserting a stupid dismissive opinion like that. Oh, but no, but no, no, no. You weren't. First of all, it wasn't stupid and it wasn't dismissive, and you were clever enough to to ascribe it to someone else. So we can both agree that in fact it was your cousin <laughs> who really just didn't understand the geopolitics. Fair Let enough. him know. Fair enough. <laughs> there you go. I appreciate the. Um, I appreciate the nuance. I appreciate the background. I appreciate the information because, you know, we before jumping to conclusions and judgments about things, especially judgments that are prejudiced by our view of as as you and your partner in crime will often say, uh, uh, bad orange guy. Uh, what is that? <laughs> yes, know. bad orange guy. Bad yeah, orange so, man. Um, we it's worth diving in before asserting opinions or judgments to get you know frankly to get more information. Now, one of our listeners, Bill Hayes, uh, I asked him if I could say, okay, so who are you and why, why is that important? Now, Bill and I have a great rapport, but um, he, he just said, uh, instead of allowing me to, to share his uh, profession, he said, um, I'm just a Bill on Capitol Hill. So it, my friend, Bill Hayes, asked about your thoughts specifically on pushing the Palestinians aside in the Middle East negotiations at the end of the Trump administration. I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a very good question, you know, and I, and I, we've spent a lot of time talking about it um, on air, but I've also spent a lot of time writing about it. You know, there are a few different issues here. One is the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The other is the relationship between the Palestinians and the rest of the Arabs. And then there's the Palestinian relationship with themselves. You know, part of the reason that Arab countries can set aside their sort of Palestine first mantra and make peace arrangements with the Israelis is because the Palestinians have 
stepped further and further away from peace with Israel. They really haven't moved towards it. And a big reason for that, and a very, and, a, and we should all acknowledge that as a terribly sad fact, but a big reason for that is simply governance. You know, whether it's Hamas governing in Gaza, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization, or it is Fatah, or what we used to know as the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, governing in the West Bank, you have two organizations that are profoundly anti-democratic. We haven't had elections for the Palestinian president in a decade and a half. Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the current, uh, the current president for life, finally called elections for later this year in the Palestinian Authority. But even as he did that, he sought to uh, assure himself that other contenders who might have pushed him aside were ruled out for running. You know, who, who suffers from this? You know, the Israelis are going to be fine, right? They're, they're fine. Um, the only people who suffer are the Palestinians, and they suffer from having the crappiest leadership in a region that is known for its crappy leadership. If, in fact, there was some a generational evolution among the Palestinians, if they were more focused on delivering prosperity and peace to their own people and less fo focused on fostering their enmity with Israel, I think there would have been a peace agreement done a long time ago. And what's happening is that history is passing them by. And that there is no one who can be blamed more than the Palestinian leadership itself. It's not Bibi Netanyahu's fault. It's just, sorry, you know, it's not. They didn't make peace under labor governments. They didn't make peace under Likud governments. And the reality is that, and sorry for ranting on about this, but the reality is that it is the Palestinian house that is not in order. I commend to everybody an interview that um, former Saudi ambassador to the United States for like three decades, uh, Prince Bandar, um, gave to Al Arabiya, um, a Saudi, so a Saudi uh, news outlet, in which he talks about what the Palestinians have done how they've missed opportunities, how they've made mistakes, and how at every opportunity they've sided with the bad guy as opposed to the, the good guy. Whether it was Saddam Hussein, or it was Ayatollah Khomeini, or it was Hafez al-Assad, they have always been on the wrong side. And he just sort of listed them off and said, you know, choices have consequences. Right, right. Yeah, it's been discussed a couple times now on this program that some of our only signs of hope are more on an in, for peace between Israel and Palestine are more on an individual level or individual smaller scale projects. We've uh, talked about the the, pro the project that is shit, <laughs> it, that there's this mutual project between that, that uh, it, Israelis and Palestinians have to collaborate on to figure out what to do with the shit with it's a it's a sewage line. So there there is little green shoots, if you will, or little shit shoots, depending on how you're thinking of it. Um, but but it's really only on a small individual scale so far. I wanted to ask you, though, about, uh, well, actually, another one of our listeners, Michael Farentino, who is lead economist for trade policy at the World Bank, 
More broadly, is there a role for morality in U.S. foreign policy? If so, what? And can a moral policy, for example, one focused on human rights, coexist with realpolitik? I feel like somebody set that up for me because that's obviously one of the things I believe in the most. You know, uh, first of all, actually, Bill Kristol uh, uh, has spoken very nicely on this uh, in years past, and I should uh, attribute it when I appropriate a concept for him from him because you know he he always he always claimed that that people viewed. Uh, uh, outsiders viewed people like us as idealists and the realists were the ones who really understood foreign policy. And he said, you know, actually we are the realists. Um, we are the ones who want to, who want to uh, deal with a world that is more congenial to our national security interests, to our economic interests, to our safety and security. That is realism as opposed to just accepting the world the way it is and dealing with it the way it is without regard to human and freedom. For me, morality is everything. Um, it is it is the lodestar uh, of, of what America should stand for in the world. It doesn't mean that everything has to has to go at bended knee before that that principle, because you always have to make compromises on everything. But that should be what informs everything we do. That's why, for example, you know, I look at how we deal with China and I love all of my pious friends on the left who say, never again. It's like, oh, you know, you mean never again except there? Right. Or did you mean never again except Rwanda? Where did you mean never again actually? You know, oh, somewhere where, you know, we could all agree because it was of such little consequence. When it matters, you got to do something. And, you know, the, the argument that people in the Obama administration used to like to make was, well, I mean, right, because, of course, all you want to do is go to war. And my answer is actually, I don't want to go to war. That is the last of our tools. We need to be able to use our political and our economic tools and our allies and our alliances to isolate human rights violators, isolate people who have concentration camps, isolate people who have tyrannies that oppress people. We need to use those powers in order to isolate them and advantage the good guys in the world. Now, can you always do that? No, you know, I like my cheap stuff from Target. I'm sorry, you're right. You know, <laughs> we are gonna have a trading relationship with China. We are gonna make compromises. The question is, how far are those compromises going to go? What are we going to do? How are we going to keep the door open for better, better, you know, for, for more freedom in the world? Um, for me, that's the most important thing that should animate absolutely every single question about foreign policy. So thank you for asking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier and thinking to what degree, though, do we have does the U.S. have the ability to impose our will or our version of morality on others? Or to what degree is it our responsibility? And at a certain point, do we become uh, another form of, of um, empire, colonialists? You know, I guess, but I guess this is the question that's that we've been asking for, you know, at least my whole adult life. First of all, you know, this notion that there are separate ideals of morality. I'm sorry. So, you know, I am very comfortable with saying my idea of morality is better. If your idea of morality is it's okay to put people in concentration camps, I don't think it's a great idea. If your idea of cultural differences is 
to oppress women or religious minorities or other kinds of minorities because that's what's culturally okay. I think my way is better. I think America's way is better. Are we flawed? For sure. Do we know everything? No. Should we be in the business of imposing our views on everybody? No. But we should be in the business of making the world safe for human freedom. You know, you are not going to find a mother who, uh, who says, I want a worse life for my kids. I really wish my kids had a bad education. I'd like to pay more in bribes. You know, I wish that I, I wish that my, you know, my husband could join my father in prison. You know, this is not cultural imperialism. There are a lot of people in the United States who have tried to blur the difference between right and wrong. And my idea is that, in fact, those are the things that are right yeah. and we can stand against them. Yeah, I, I should clarify to say that I think my own view is that there can be wide and broad agreement on certain things that are good and certain things that are evil. And, you know, I don't know how long that list is of principles, but there is indeed a list of certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You know, and then, and I don't have a well-formed opinion about this, but at what point do certain transgressions require, make it imperative for a nation like the United States to then act? You know, to, to your point, the, the Uyghurs, you know, in concentration camps, I think anyone of goodwill will objectively say that that's wrong, Right. And if there is more assertive action taken, and you know, to, to another point that you made, that there's any number of actions, it's not immediately going to war, bombing, or what have you. There's a lot of options um, in international relationships to ex exert pressure um, to, you know, to achieve um, good outcomes. So for me, it, I agree that there are certain principles that any human being with a soul can say, this is right and this is wrong. Um, but where I have questions is, I don't have a well-formed opinion about, well, then what do we do about it as a nation? What is our responsibility? What's the imperative? At what point do you trigger option A, option B, option C? So uh, yeah, I that's, that's where my head is at. And I get the benefit of talking to someone like you to help to flesh out some of those questions a little bit more specifically and think through different possibilities. You know, these answers often aren't simply black or white and certainly not something that we can fit in on a tweet. <laughs> so, no, that's for sure. So, um, so in, in an opinion piece in September in the Washington Post, you feared the leftward lurch of the Democratic Party even more than Donald Trump and that former vice president, now President Joe, Joe Biden, would be a figurehead president. So now that we're several weeks in, almost a couple months into the Biden presidency, how are you feeling about that now? I really, 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 really like Joe Manchin. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very smart, very handsome, very good man. Um, look, you know, 
uh, I wrote that piece, and uh, and it's been certainly commented upon and caricatured uh, in 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 six ways from Sunday. But I wrote that piece because the Democratic Party has been taken over in large part by people who believe that our institutions, um, as they have worked for the last hundred plus years, and sometimes much more than that, um, should be should be upended. That the electoral college uh, should either be abolished or should be corrupted uh, through the growth of the House of Representatives. That the House of Representatives should be enlarged. That the District of Columbia should be allowed into the union, as should Puerto Rico. That the Supreme Court should be enlarged from nine members, um, and that all of our other federal courts should be enlarged. And these are not um, these are not uh, views rooted in principle. There are, there are very, very interesting and, and smart arguments about all of these issues that can be made with intellectual honesty. And there are people who will agree and disagree. But that was not the agenda of the Democratic Party. The agenda of the Democratic Party is what has come to be called equity, although I have no idea what the hell they mean by that. But to uh, en- enlarge the size of the uh, Supreme Court so that they can have enough liberal justices, to enlarge the Senate so that they can have a veto-proof majority of Democratic senators, so that they can enlarge the House of Representatives in order to upend the Electoral College and the way we see it. And to my mind, doing those things is far more of a danger to the Republic than I believe that Donald Trump represented. Now, I will say that I wrote that before what happened at the Capitol. And I think that I share with pretty much everybody I know, not everybody, but pretty much everybody I know, and certainly everybody I respect, a horror at what happened. And and, you know, double that horror, having very dear friends among those members and, and staff that were in the Capitol on that day. Donald Trump bore terrible responsibility for that. If you had said to me on the day before I wrote that op-ed that that was going to happen, I would not have published it, I'll be honest. Mm. Um, But I still believe that the threat to those institutions is a very serious one. And it's all outcome-oriented. Again, you can talk about changing, modernizing, fixing, amending, enlarging, you know, abolishing. I I don't care. Those are all decent conversations to have in a democracy. My argument is, if the only reason you want to do it is in order to ensure a particular outcome for your political party or for your corner of your political party, that is anti-democratic. That is dangerous to our democracy. That is dangerous to our institutions, more dangerous than some stupid guy at the White House. Right. Because we're going to have other stupid presidents. (laughs) We may already have one. And, uh, you know, and uh, and so I thought that was an important an important thing to understand. And I still remain very, very worried about those things because you can be sure that if it weren't for Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, the filibuster would already be gone. Yeah, and to be fair, you had expressed critical judgment of quote unquote gun-toting racists who repeatedly received sucker from, from Trump on the largest stages. But as late as the fall of two, 2020, you didn't view these this fringe to represent the mainstream of the Republican party have your views changed at all? No, I haven't. My views, my views haven't changed at all. Um, I don't think that the main. So, you know, I think one of the differences between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is that 
the Republican Party is is fundamentally a party of its members. Are some of those members, you know, nightmares? Of course, you know, some of the members of the Democratic Party are nightmares as well. But I th- I still believe that it is a, p- a party of its constituency. I believe the Democratic Party is a party of elites. It is the party of the New York Times. Um, it is the party of Mario, you know, uh, not Mario shows how old I am. Yeah. It, is the, it is the party of Andrew Cuomo. It is the party of uh, Bill Clinton. You know, it's fine if I do it. It's just not okay if you do it. It's the San Francisco, New York mores that guide the party. And for all those people who say to me, well, if that were the case, then how would they have elected Joe Biden? And my answer is, the people elected Joe Biden, the elites won the party. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to push back on that, but number one, we don't have time. But number two, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point to think of it that way. I I was hopeful when I saw Meg Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, Colin Powell, et cetera, uh, speak at the DNC. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the agenda is the gravitational pull is more towards Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Right. Two aged, you know, uh, people from the Northeast that don't have any idea what the entire rest of the country looks like and thinks that they're deplorable. Yeah. Well, one more question and then one piece of important business and then we'll we'll I'll I'll you'll be dismissed. You'll you'll get to go to recess. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Any questions for me? That's my last uh, technically my last question. Oh, okay. Well, I'd love to ask, why are you doing this podcast? Not with me particularly, but yeah. why are you doing it in general? Well, I think that a lot of folks do indeed have very categorical, overly simplistic views of any number of issues as well as any number of thought leaders. So in having these conversations, we're able to all of a sudden make a human being, uh, turn turn a, a figure into a human being and understand a little bit more nuance and background behind behind someone and how they arrived at who they are and how they formed their opinions. I think nuance is really important and understanding human beings at a human level is really important. And having conversations among among people, I was born in an observant Jewish family. Uh, Most of my immediate families are Democrats and liberals. I identified more along the Alex P. Keaton lines of, you know, being more conservative (laughs) in my views. I also became a Christian a couple decades ago. And my father and I, who's my sometime co-host, have had these at what was very contentious conversations about politics and religion and all this difficult stuff over the years have had these deep, rich, meaningful conversations that have enriched both of our lives. So I thought it would be worth having some of these conversations. That's why. So, That's wonderful. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm uh, I'm delighted to to be part of a, a, a wise effort. Yeah, I appreciate that. And last bit of business: How can you find you? What the hell is going on? And any of your other work at uh, AEI? So my work at AEI, you can find through our website, www.aei.org, and I commend it to everybody. There's some, there really is a wonderful diversity of, of terrific work on everything from national security to domestic policy, cultural issues, economics. There's a lot to learn on AEI's website. 
our podcast can be found wherever podcasts can be found, <laughs> whether it's on Spotify or iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or I could keep going on. But uh, but please do join us. What the hell is going on is with me and my co-host, uh, uh, Mark Thiessen. And I'd say follow me on Twitter, but I really don't do much Twitter anymore for all the reasons you just laid out. Yeah. You know, just uh, I, so I, I look at it occasionally just to see what my my friends overseas are up to and you know news from from my part of the world but otherwise i'm not i don't really enjoy engaging but on the other hand if you want to at d pletka no doubt (laughs) terrific and that's what the hell is going on podcast and i commend it highly and aei.org it really is a great resource i commend it highly uh easy to navigate and great great thoughtful pieces all throughout and um, Danny Pletka, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great getting to know you a little bit better. Well, thank you, Corey. It's really been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Let's make sure that this isn't the last time that we spend time together. Let's make sure indeed. All if right. we could all travel again, I'd say come visit us at AEI. Oh, that'd be awesome. Thanks again. Great. Take care now. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, Please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.